So that's 2 Peter, verses 1 to 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Good morning. Okay, excellent. It'll be downhill from here, I suspect. <laughs> it's uh, good to be with you this morning. It's, uh, my, I think this is my first uh, opportunity to be here. Uh, I've heard lots of things about Providence and uh, have had things that I've done with Mikey. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, this church is part of a collection of churches and we, th there are certain tasks that we do together. Uh, and so I've had a chance to, to, to know Mikey a bit through that. And uh, Megan and I have had the, uh, Megan's misfortune and my misfortune of doing things at QTC together. Um, so I've heard things about Providence, but it's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, the passage this morning we've got is a passage that very much focuses on character. And uh, one of the reasons why that was uh, chosen uh, for this uh, thing, it's part of a series that I did uh, elsewhere, uh, is partly just arising out of the events of this year. Uh, the events of this year that have been quite tumultuous, uh, particularly I think as you look at the states, have demonstrated just the fundamental importance of character. Uh, that uh, one of the reasons why I think there's been so much kind of tumult around the election in America is uh, America's fairly divided and both sides, as they see the, op the uh, leader of the opposition, uh, have a fairly strong negative reaction. Uh, in many ways, both sides were kind of voting against somebody rather than for somebody. And a lot of the issue on both sides was their ability to see the lack of character on the other side. Uh, Trump's lack of character, I think, is fairly obvious on almost any issue. Uh, if he can't see his self-interest, it's fairly obvious that he just either uh, goes on Twitter or um, just sort of goes to sleep, one of the two. Uh, but the Democrat side was made fairly obvious this year in the way in which they responded to the riots and the burnings of shops and the like. Their just complete inability to restrict rioters because the rioters were their own political base. And so when put to the test on something that was actually destroying lots of livelihoods, they just completely sort of disappeared and refused to actually do anything. The character issues on both sides. And... That, I think, is something that is just true as a general rule in life, that when things get tough, when things get hard, it's not so much your giftedness or your convictions or what policies you want to do. When things start to get tough, 
it's character that ends up being fairly determinative for how things will flow out. It doesn't matter how gifted you are if you buckle under pressure. It doesn't matter what great policies you have if your own self-interest just sabotages that. In that sense, character becomes fairly determinative. And it's certainly that way for the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life in many ways starts tough and then just kind of gets harder from there. And so today, this morning's sermon is very much a passage that focuses on this call to character. And I think if you're going to think about character, 2 Peter 1 is just a great passage to land and to start your thinking about because of the way it unpacks it for us. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father in heaven, we ask that this morning as we hear this word that you have spoken again, uh, as we have this time to reflect upon it, uh, I ask that your spirit would take this word and would breathe it into our souls, breathe it into our hearts, breathe it into our very bones. Uh, I ask that you give me words to say that do justice to your word and that bring honour to the Lord Jesus. And I ask that in this way that you would change us and make us more like him, uh, that we would take on your likeness. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So it's clear that the passage very much revolves around a call to character. You get this refrain happening twice, first in verse 5 and then in verse 10, to make every effort. And in both cases, the making every effort is to do with taking on certain character qualities or virtues. And the impression that you get by this double repetition of make every effort is that this is quite serious. There's nothing light and passing about making every effort. Making every effort is just tiring, just listening to it. It has the, the sort of thought and the implication that this is going to demand an awful lot of you. And so this is a very morally demanding passage. And yet while it's morally demanding, it's not moralistic. It's not that Peter goes, look, you're all a good bunch of chaps. You're all decent people. Let me just remind you of your obligations as those that follow Jesus. And now get on with it, guys. That's not at all how Peter starts things or, or the kind of flavour that drives it. He doesn't actually start with us, even though what we need to do is the centre of it. He actually starts with what God does. He starts with God and then moves to us because he wants to understand us to understand our effort in terms of what God is doing for us. So listen again to how it starts. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Hear how he starts off here. God has given us everything we need for a godly life. That note of everything there is quite significant. Uh, Peter here is suggesting there's no Achilles heel, there's no weak point, there's no ongoing inability to live the godly life. Everything we need to live a way that's godly has now been given to us on a silver platter. And that in itself suggests that the rules of the game has changed for those that belong to the Lord Jesus. If you are a child of Adam, the Bible testifies that you are just simply unable to do what is godly. You're unable to do anything that's genuinely and realistically good. 
The Bible's testimony of the goodness that human beings do is that it's the righteousness is as filthy rags. It's a weird kind of inability that the Bible talks about because you can't on judgment day say, sorry God, I couldn't do it, I was unable to. You can't plead it as kind of a defence. But nonetheless, in different ways, through stories and through explicit statements by the apostles and the prophets, the Bible drives home that human beings are just unable to do anything genuinely good. And here Peter is indicating that God has changed the rules of the game. It is now possible for those that belong to the Lord Jesus to do things that are genuinely good, to actually be godly. Everything needed for that has now been provided. And this suggests that the old order of things has in some ways just passed away if you belong to the Lord Jesus. A new path through the forest has opened up for you that just wasn't there before. Something about what the Lord Jesus has done has just changed things. And the idea here, it's not just for the best of us, it's for all of us, even the worst of us. But all of us, if you actually belong to the Lord Jesus, are now capable of doing something that we were not capable of doing before. There is a capacity now to live a godly life. And understand what Peter's saying here, he's not doing an argument that we often hear. We often hear an argument along the lines of uh, Christians are so grateful because of the forgiveness they've received that they just out of gratitude do what God wants them to do. Uh, that is no doubt true. But that's not the primary focus that Peter has here. It's not primarily to do with the gratitude we have for forgiveness that he's focusing on. It's more supernatural than just psychological. It's the power of God at work in us. There's something about the power of God at work that now makes this possible. Something is now happening in us supernaturally that creates a very different kind of pathway for us, humanly speaking. And that divine action in us is grounded in who God himself is. We're told that God calls us to himself by his own glory and goodness. That is God... In doing this thing with us, he's not, in a sense, just holding us at arm's length and just kind of going, don't get too close, but fine, I'll, I'll work in your life. The very way in which he's working is grounded in who he is, grounded in his glory, grounded in his goodness. He's personally invested in what he's doing in us. There's something here that's just important to God in the way in which he's working in us. The way he works in us goes with the grain with who he is. And what he gives us is a knowledge of himself and promises. And it's through knowing him and the Lord Jesus and these great promises that he's given us, which I think is a way of referring to the, the message we get in the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, that these things that we have is the means by which we access this power that comes to us. And Peter says, because of all that, two incredible things have taken place and are taking place either of which would be just kind of mind-blowing and together they're kind of whatever comes after your mind has been blown. It's kind of the next stage after that. Uh, the first of these is this idea that we escape the corruption that is in the world through desire. Uh, this is something that's quite remarkable. The world, as the Bible portrays it, is kind of corrupt and corrupting. It's kind of bad and kind of smelly and getting smellier in a bad, decaying kind of way. And if you're part of it, you're part of that trajectory. 
that there's something about the world that's just kind of getting worse and wearing out, not just in terms of physics, but morally and spiritually before God as well. And no mortal human being can escape that. No mortal human being can escape their own death. No mortal human being can escape the spiritual corruption that is in the world. Because the things that are in the world, the, the lust of the eyes, the, the desire of the flesh, the pride of life, as John talks about it, those are just the things that are in you and I. The world is really just your and my DNA writ large. The reason why the world finds it so easy to press us into its mould is that its mould is just made out of you and me. It's just a bigger version of us coming back at us. And so no human being is able to escape that. No human being, in a sense, can escape their own DNA. And yet here Peter says not just that we're able to escape it. What he says is that we have already escaped it. There is a sense that the moment that you belong to Christ, the moment you've put your faith in him, you've already, in a sense, just kind of slipped to the side and you're just completely out of the grasp of the world. You've already escaped its corruption, which is why it's now possible for you to live in a way that's not corrupt and corrupting. Something that Christ has done has already <coughs> decisively just freed you from its grasp. Well, that in itself would be remarkable. But it almost pales in insignificance compared to its bigger brother that kind of comes before it, able to be partakers of the divine nature. It's a little sort of evocative statement that's so out there, so strong, that if it wasn't found in Scripture, you'd think it was just blasphemy. How can a creature partake in the very nature of the Creator? How can someone mortal partake in the nature of the one who is eternal? How is someone who is finite able to partake in the nature of someone who is infinite? What does it even mean to do that? And you're really just hoping that Peter would just give you, you know, just two more sentences. Just, just pause for a moment and just unpack what on earth he means by partaking the divine nature. But he doesn't do it. He just kind of moves on. He just throws it in there and keeps going. It's the only statement of this kind of nature in the New Testament. And this is all we've got. And so it's very hard to work out what on earth Peter means by it. So the one thing I would suggest is never centre your view about the Christian life and your relationship with God on that statement. That there's just not enough there for you to do much with it. But it's clear that Peter here is saying that something really significant is going on between us and God. It's not just that God sits there lofty and apart from us and we sit here isolated and sealed off from God and we just try and copy God. Something more than that is going on. In some sense, who God is overflows and shapes who we are. In some sense, there is a relationship between us and God where it is legitimate to say... We share in his nature. Now, I don't think Peter, by doing that, is using technical language. I don't think he's trying to be precise. He doesn't stop to explain it. I think he's kind of sketching us a kind of an evocative picture of something there. It's hard to nail it down what it is, but it clearly is pointing that there's some real thing going on between us and God, where who God is shapes who we are. But if you do want to nail it further, 
I think you have to go then to the next part of the passage. Because what does Peter immediately move on to, having talked about sharing in the divine nature? Well, he moves on to talking about taking on certain character qualities. Uh, Listen to it again. Uh, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. If you want a, a shorthand for that is, it's to become godly. It's to become like God. What does it mean to share in the divine nature? It's to take on the very qualities that characterise God himself, that, that set God apart from everything that's not God. And whereas you and I usually, when we think that, go, yeah, I'd love the cool qualities. I'd love the ability to say, let there be hamsters. And all of a sudden hamsters just come into existence out of thin air. I'd love the ability to be able to just create a universe, to, to, to just never have to face death, to, to, to be outside of time. That that's, that those would be the cool things. Those are the qualities I'd love to have. But time and time again in Scripture, God calls on human beings to be like him. Not the spectacular qualities that he has that we are so drawn to, but the character qualities he has is what we really need. The stuff that we kind of go, really? That feels more like castor oil than something fun. But time and time again, those are the things that God pushes on us to become like him in, take on his character, take on his values, take on his moral integrity, take on his open-hearted love to people. Take those things on and become like me in these things. And that's what life will be for you. And what Peter here is getting at in doing that, it's not just us mimicking God. It's in some way God himself being imprinted upon us. It's not just simply us going, okay, God's like that, I will work hard and I'll just become like God. In some sense, who God is overflows and reshapes us from the ground up. And that's why I think it is that Peter begins this with faith. He says that you need to make every effort to add one of these qualities after another. And the first one on the list is faith. Because if this entire process is being driven by God and what God has done for us in Christ, if it's his divine power that's at work in us, then faith has to be the first thing you mention in that series. Because faith is the one way in which you receive what God has for you. Faith is that open hand that just reaches out and takes whatever it is that God puts into it. If this is to be something that's driven by what God does, it has to start with faith. But while faith is clearly the engine room of the process, Peter goes on to add more qualities, a lot more qualities. Because while faith is the sole way in which you receive what God does, faith is never meant to be a solo act. It's never meant to just kind of be on stage all by itself, kind of alone and a bit lonely. It's always meant to bring a band with it. It's always meant to head up a bigger act that comes along for the ride. When faith is just by itself, you have to ask a question whether faith is actually there at all. Because the very nature of what faith does is it receives what God gives it and what God gives it are these extra qualities. And so if you have faith, these extra qualities will start to come into play as well. 
And so Peter then goes through this list of qualities. Uh, Add to faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. And there's nothing particularly remarkable about this list. Uh, This list is a lot like other lists that you find in the New Testament. Uh, These kinds of lists occur in different places in the epistles. And like the other ones, this one has a couple of items that aren't there in those, and it's missing some ones that are in those ones. But nothing there is particularly surprising. It looks a little bit similar to Fruit of the Spirit and some other kind of similarities in other places. And I think that gives us the clue as to how we're to read it. This isn't meant to be some kind of secret squirrel recipe. Uh, Here you have the exact recipe of how to become godly. First of all, make sure you have faith. Uh, Once you've nailed faith, uh, then you should start to get goodness. Uh, And then once you get goodness, then you can start knowing something about the faith that you hold. And once you've mastered and got all of the knowledge of the Bible down, then you can worry about self-control. Which, you know, if you don't like people, that's a good way of doing it because it'll be years before you have to worry about love. Because that's the last one on the list. You could drag that process out for most of your human life before you have to worry about loving people. That, that, I think, is not even remotely how Peter anticipates us seeing this. He's using that just as a way to keep interest. But the obvious impression he's giving us is this is a picture of what it looks like to be a mature Christian. This is a picture of what it looks like to be godly. This is a picture of what it means to look like to be a little bit like God in human form. These are the kind of qualities that characterise you. These qualities that you have. And the basic thrust he's giving is you have to have a whole set. You have to go for all of them. If you like, it's like Pokemon. You've got to catch them all. It's very different from how we think about so much of life. So much of adult life is specialising. What is it that I'm good at? What is it that I'm bad at? And by and large, we try and find things that play to our strengths and try and find things that don't require us to have to focus on areas of weakness. And it can be very tempting to do that in the Christian life. You find that person that's just got immense self-control and they're just putting more and more energy into getting even more self-controlled until you kind of want to play some jazz for them just to kind of unbend a little bit. But they don't care about people. They just have immense self-control but they just don't care. And then you have other people that kind of love but the love doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't do anything because it's just kind of sentimental, there's nothing there to ground it, but they just keep putting more energy into their love. Peter's saying here that in this aspect of life, it's not about specialisation. You actually need to look at the whole set, which means particularly you need to look at the areas that you're weak in. If there's particular aspects of your life where your godliness is weaker in, those are actually the areas where you need to put more time and energy into not the ones that you're already kind of relatively speaking further ahead on you need to bring the other ones kind of up to par and that's tough none of us particularly like having to work in the areas that we're weak on we prefer to play to our strengths and peter is saying no you've got to actually get the whole set you've got to work on the whole amount you've got to range across the field And it's not just that you have to have the whole set, you have to have the whole set in ever-increasing amounts. Listen to him again. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. It's simultaneously liberating and demanding. It's liberating because Peter's not saying, look, there is some arbitrary bar that God has set. And if you are a Christian, then you cannot fall below the bar. And here's the bar, you've got to make sure you hit the bar. Now Peter's saying, there's no bar. Wherever you start is where you start. Wherever you're patchy, wherever you're weak, wherever your character is flawed, well, that's where you're starting from. And that's fine. God starts where you start. You don't have to hit some bar first. You just start where you start. There's no kind of thing there. All you need is just progress. Not an actual amount that you have to hit. Incredibly liberating. God doesn't go, look, here I am, jump and make it. He goes, where are you at? I'll come to you and we'll start the journey together. Incredibly liberating. But also incredibly exacting because you'll never ever stop. Wherever you are, however far you have gotten, you don't stop. You keep pushing forward. It's ever increasing amounts across the board. The impression here with this make every effort is that this is what you invest yourself in. That this is what you pour yourself into. To flip the example from earlier, so much of adult life is about not putting too many eggs in one basket. As an adult, you've got multiple responsibilities in multiple areas. You get the person who's slack at their job because they're just too invested in their family. And you get the person who just lets their family just kind of go haywire because they're just sinking more and more time into their job. Both of them are bad pathways for human beings. Being a human being is working out exactly how much you should engineer something and then leave it at that and not over-engineer it to be able to meet your other responsibilities in life. Whatever you over-engineer in your life sucks the oxygen out from another aspect of your life that could have done with it and will now be left undone. And so much of adult life is just triage working out what things I can afford to let go and what things I really have to make sure I nail well. That, that's kind of life as an adult, is to make sure that you've got everything being covered reasonably well. But here Peter is saying in this domain of life, that's not what's going on at all. This domain of life is single-minded investment forever. As long as you have breath, your ambition is to get better in these areas. Day by day, month by month, year by year, decade after decade. It's more the mindset of an athlete or a high world-class musician or the like. You are that guy that gets up at 4am every morning to go and hit the pool for two hours every morning. Every single day of their life without break. You are that person that just practices their scales for two hours a day, every day of their life, before they do their real practice for the day. That's kind of the mindset that Peter's putting forward here. It's constant, earnest, 
faithful, single-minded, slogging away at it, day after day, perseverance is in the picture. And what Peter says here is, it's the dogged pursuit of this is what makes you effective in your service of the Lord Jesus. That if you wish to be effective in God's house, if you wish to be effective for God's purposes in this kingdom, more significant than your giftedness, more significant than your kind of knowledge of the Bible and the like, is just the degree to which you are pursuing this kind of transformation. If you pursue this kind of transformation and you're dogged at it year after year, you just will be effective in God's kingdom. You can't not be. You embody the very thing the gospel is bringing into the world. And if for you, you are half-hearted or slack or just distracted, you will be overall, as Peter says, ineffective and unproductive. Even if you're doing lots, there won't be much fruit for the kingdom in what you've done. It's this struggle to pursue this is the key overwhelming factor to our effectiveness in Christ's service. And it's particularly the case when things get tough. Following God under normal circumstances is just tough. So often God calls you to do things that you, on the whole you'd rather not do that. It's just going to be at minimum inconvenient and at the maximum it's a little bit goes against the grain. And so often he calls on you to do things, to not do things, that you'd really rather do that and you're going to feel as though you miss out a bit if you don't get to do that. That's just tough. And that's just part of just basics of the Christian life. But then it goes up from there. Sacrifices you make, people that reject you or don't like you, kind of a, a, a general hostility that can come your way. A, a risking of relationships as you talk to them about things. That there are just different ways in which the Christian life starts tough and then can get harder still. And again, in those kinds of areas, it's the degree to which you are just single-mindedly focusing on trying to become more and more like God and how you behave that makes the difference as to which way you move in those circumstances. So often it's when you're at your lowest and your hardest is when you're actually most effective for God because it's so obvious that something else is going on than your amazingness. But that tends to only happen if you really want to be following God in all the times so that that's actually what's driving things in the hardest of times. This stuff matters at all times, but particularly when things are hard. And so Peter f f finishes, if this was even possible, by raising the stakes even further for us. Uh, having already kind of indicated how important it is and, and pushing it on us as something that's, that's necessary for us to understand in order to be able to be productive and effective, he now ties it back to salvation itself. Whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter's very careful here. He wants to disconnect what he's been talking about from justification, from having your sins forgiven. 
It's not that if you do this, you will be forgiven. No, if you don't do it, you've forgotten that you've already been forgiven, which indicates that forgiveness comes first and then this comes after. This is not about being forgiven. It's what you do because you're forgiven. So he's very carefully to kind of just put that to one side there and not mix that up for us, which is helpful. But nonetheless, he wants us to understand that in a bigger sense, while this isn't about forgiveness, it is about salvation. This is the way in which you make your calling and election sure or confirm it. If you do these things, you won't stumble. If you do these things, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In the biggest scale of things, this is about salvation, even though it's not about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the single most important thing that God brings us because of what Christ has done. But Christ hasn't come just simply to stop you from going to hell. He hasn't come just simply so that you won't receive the punishment for sin. Christ has also come to save you from sin itself. There's just something terrible about being a terrible person. Unless you're a one-eyed Trump supporter... Most people feel some sort of combination of revulsion and pity when they look at Donald Trump. There's just something bad about being bad. It's not cool, it's just kind of yuck. When you come across someone who's just a pathological liar, their, their whole life has been spent deceiving people and now they themselves can't work out what's true and what's not because they've lost all grasp on reality someone who's so sexually immoral that they're just sleazy and it just kind of comes out of the pores and just when you open to the room you feel like going and having a shower there's something about that that's just ugly and that's a big part of what the gospel is there to solve as well it's not just to save you from the penalty of sin it's to save you from sin itself it's to save you from being that kind of person and to make you into a person more like the Lord Jesus himself, more like his heavenly father, to make you godly. It, it's not forgiveness, but it's still salvation. God sends the Lord Jesus to save you from yourself, even as he's also saving you from hell. And so Peter says here, this is the way that you confirm your calling and election, because when God calls you to himself, he's calling you to make you like him to share in his nature. And this is what it means to share in his nature. As you take this on, it shows to yourself and to others that God has called you. That God's final destiny is for you to enter into Christ's kingdom. And that kingdom will be full of people like the Lord Jesus. It's one of the reasons why it will be so amazing when he returns. And God isn't going to take you there screaming and kicking against your will. The pathway to that is this pathway. You walk towards it by walking down this road. You don't earn your way there by doing it, but this is the direction that the Spirit of God is taking you in. And so Peter says, if you don't work at it, the implication is you'll stumble. If this is not something you want, if you don't want what Christ is giving you, if you don't want to be changed, if you're happy being you, there's a reasonable chance during your lifetime you will stumble and fall out. But if you want what he has to offer you, 
That's the very thing that keeps you from stumbling and leaving. It's the very thing that keeps you on the path towards him and his kingdom. Travelling this way is the way to make sure that you receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. And so this is the call that comes to us this morning in this passage. Everything we need to do this has already been done for us. Through what Christ has done by dying and rising again, through the power of God that comes to us through his promises, you and I have already escaped the world. We already are able to partake in God's own nature. And so the call to you and I is to take on all of the godliness that God has for us, all of the change of character, and to just keep working on it through our lives, not sweat how far we've come, but just kind of look to see how far we have to go and just take the next step and just do that day after day, year after year. Keep moving forward. There's no arbitrary bar you have to make. Just keep moving forward and take hold of what it is that God's taken hold of you for. That's the way to be productive in his service. That's the way to stay on the path. And that's the way in which you reach the end when you come to the the end of time. It's an amazing call that is there. There is an obligation on us to do it. But but there's also a possibility and a giftedness that's here as well. God is actually changing us to be more like him and less like how he used to be. And so the call to you and I is make every effort 